So good to see you and to join you wherever you're watching from, wherever you're joining us. I can tell you this, um, I'm committed to making the next few minutes worth your time. And uh, we're in the middle of a chapter here at Ramp Church where we're, we're wanting to see what is God up to in the world. How can we have eyes to see that? And then what does it mean to be a part of that? And we genuinely believe here at Ram Church that God is alive. He's a living God. He's not just a tradition or Jesus wasn't just a man in history, but he's currently at work. He's currently speaking. He's currently moving. And we want to see what is he doing. I feel like part of what's going to happen over the next uh, couple months as we, as we um, dive into this chapter is we're going to have eyes to see. Well, our awareness is going to come alive to, to the presence of the God that's already here, the, the God that's already speaking, the God that's already working. And I love the story in John chapter 3 where Jesus is talking to a religious leader, Nicodemus, and he says, um, you've got to be born again. You've got to be born of the water and of the Spirit just to even see the kingdom of God. So what are we doing over the next couple months? We're diving into what does it look like to see what God's up to in the world. Yes, we believe he's active. Yes, we believe he's speaking. And then what does it mean for us to be a part? And so I'm really thankful to be uh, with you on this journey. Um, like Cameron just said, we're in the middle of um, this chapter, but it's not just preaching and teaching. This is something we're working through as, uh, relationally as a community. So I want you to be a part of that journey as well. We actually go deeper every Wednesday night, and, and maybe um, one of the best Wednesday nights we've ever had to kick off a season of Ramp Communities was this past Wednesday night. So if you're not a part, I, I just want to encourage you. They're not a review of what we've talked about on Sunday. It's the next step deeper. And, and let me tell you this. These teachings, they're only as good as our implementation. I mean, they're only as good as how much it changes us. And we need, to, we need to take this material in. And I didn't invent this stuff. What we're trying to do is we're trying to dive into the story of God throughout history. And then we're trying to see how that helps us see what God's up to right now in the present. But is, is, that teaching is only as relevant to the world around us. It's only as relevant to your life and as trans transformative to your life as, as it is to, to the way we implement it. And that takes relationship. It takes accountability. It takes journeying with other people. It's not just a teaching that we listen to and we're inspired by. Let's let this change us from the inside out. So the, the, the title of today's talk is Love is Missional. Love is Missional. And we're going to be looking at what's the motive behind our mission. You know, I think when a lot of people think of church or religion or faith, there's probably, if they were to kind of mind map that word church or faith or God, it probably wouldn't take them long to get to the word guilt. <laughs> I think a lot of times we associate faith, church, sermons, preachers with guilt. And a lot of, I, maybe it's just my history, but I think I've, I think I've been in pastoral leadership long enough to hear a lot, uh, enough of your stories to know that oftentimes our journey in Christian mission can be driven by guilt. Like this sense of, I'm meant, I know I'm meant to live a certain way, and I, I don't really know how to do that, so I'm going to join the outreach team one week, or I'm going to join home groups, not because I really find it life-giving, not because I have a revelation, I have insight on how it's impacting to me, but just because I feel like that's what Christians are supposed to do. And if you, ever, if you ever have that overwhelming feeling, maybe, maybe we need to do a heart check and go, what is my actual motive for this? And what I want to do today is maybe do a little course corrections. Maybe do um, maybe like a chiropractor, a spiritual chiropractor. Do an adjustment on what's behind our life of mission. What, what's, what's the foundation behind even our heart to want to engage and the beautiful thing is we can look at lives throughout the past 2,000 years and even before, so centuries past, and we can look at giants in the faith, people who live these missional lives, and we can kind of reverse engineer them a bit. And what was behind 
those radical lives of laid down sacrifice, of love, of giving to one another, these, these radical lives where they found fulfillment in seeing the needs of others met. And that's why the title of this message gives you a little hint of what that is. Love is missional. So let's, let's look at here's This is kind of the verse that I'm going to unpack. We're going to read a lot of scripture today. So I hope you have your Bible handy. Um, if you don't have a paper Bible, just open it up on your device, and at the click of a button, you can have basically any Bible translation you want. So the mission life. Here's, here's, here's the verse that we're going we're gonna to talk about today. 2 Corinthians 5, verses 14 and 15. And I'm going to focus on the first part of this verse now, and then at the end of the message, I'm going to return and talk about the second half of the verse. So this is Paul writing to one of the churches he leads, and the church he leads is in a city called Corinth, which is not too unlike Manchester. It's an urban center. It was very diverse, pluralistic, a lot. It was spiritually charged. So um, sometimes I think we, we think of society maybe in two categories, um, secular or non-spiritual and Christian, especially in the West, we think of it that way. But as we know, especially in Britain, the center of globalization, that our culture, especially in Manchester, is is actually spiritually charged. There's a lot of different ideas of who God is and how to relate to him, what he's up to in the world, and what he's into, what he thinks is good, what we think is good or right or wrong. And Corinth is very similar to that. And so Paul spent some time in Corinth, and he started churches there, so he knows these people. And they're now, they're not gathering in one huge building because the the church was just a ragtag grassroots movement at this point. They were actually meeting in homes across Corinth. So this was a really a network of house churches. And that's why Paul's writing a letter. He's away from them. He wants wants to to speak to them. So he didn't have YouTube. He didn't have ramp.church slash MCR. He didn't have podcasts. He had had a letter. So he sends him a letter. And this is what he, he's talking about his motivation. Here's what he says. For Christ's love compels us. Paul's talking about what's behind his mission. Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that one died for all and therefore all died. And and Christ died for all that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them and was raised again. So, so Paul's is telling a summary of what Jesus did, but he's saying behind it all, what compels him is actually Christ's love. And if you read on to the next chapter, you can see what it actually compelled him to do. He gives a summary of his own journey in living a missional life. Here's what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 4 and 5. He's talking about him and his ministry companions patiently endure troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. When Paul says Christ's love compels him, here's what he's saying it compelled him to do. He endured troubles and hardships and calamities of every kind. We've been beaten, put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion. I know it sounds like he's describing the morning commute on the Manchester tram, but it's it's a bit more than that, folks. Put in prison, faced angry mobs, worked to exhaustion, endured sleepless nights, and gone without food. Paul is literally laying down his life for the mission of God. He has eyes to see what God's up to in the world. He has a heart to want to engage, and he's got a theological understanding of how the storyline of God is meant to unfold, and he's jumping on board. And he's not just jumping on board in, in, in like an attendance sort of way. He's not just wanting to convert people. Remember last week's message? He's not reducing the work of the kingdom and, and, and saying, yeah, I'm signing up to that. No, he's looking at what God's up to in the full expanse of the call of God in his life. And he's signing up. And, and him signing up is costing him greatly. What, what's behind that? What's behind that? And let's go back to 2 Corinthians 5 where we just read. Christ's love is what he says is behind it. Now, to our modern sensibilities, there's a couple issues we have with this. The, the first thing is the fact that it's something from the outside of Paul that's motivating him 
to, to, to do something that costs him so great. You, you know, to our modern sensibilities, and may, maybe you're not a person of faith, maybe you're visiting us today, so glad you've chosen to be a part. And I believe the best place for you to explore faith is actually around people who faith has been impacting to them. So I'm really glad that you're a part of the service today. But maybe you can even relate to this in, um, in your everyday life. Maybe some of you think this way. All of us, though, can see this in the culture around us, where in many ways our culture's highest ideal is to be true to yourself, to be true to oneself. That the thought of anything from outside of me compelling me to do anything, that's almost our culture's greatest sin. From a, from a cultural perspective. Um, Charles Taylor, the philosopher, the Canadian philosopher, he wrote it like this. He said, there's a certain way of being human that is my way. I'm called upon to live my life in this way and not in imitation of anyone else's life. This notion gives a new importance to being true to myself. If I'm not, I miss the point of my life. I miss what being human is for me. What's Charles Taylor talking about? He's pointing to that modern idea that all of us, it's like the air we breathe. It's just the way we see the world. That, of course, the ultimate success in life is to be true to me. Why would Paul ever submit himself to something outside of it? It's, it's not his own love. It's Christ's love. It's not his own desire. It's Christ's. Desire, And the only way that that could happen is that Paul, at some point in his journey, discovered that there is a greater reality to where Christ lives than what's even on the inside of me. And if we could even see Charles Taylor, the great secular philosopher, in his later writings, he began to acknowledge that although we want to think that just by searching inside we can create a moral framework that can create a better world, at the end of the day, that's an empty pursuit. Charles Taylor himself recognized we really have no ground to stand on if we just look inward for the answers to life's journey. And, and Paul had discovered this. He's saying, I'm not even looking inside. I'm looking at Christ's Love. The, the second way I feel like this verse really kind of gets at us in, in the modern, our modern sensibilities is I can't, my version, my vision of love would not compel me to face any of the hardship that Paul faced. I, I, I think yours and mine, sometimes the definition of love that, that we've created uh, has, is rooted more in Disney than it is in the eternal Word of God. Uh, we think of a love, yes, that first of all has to be true to ourselves. I mean, that's a storyline that, that Hollywood is constantly preaching to us. And we, the, the idea that love would be anything where I have to sacrifice what I want for somebody else. I mean, the Disney version of love is, is essentially, if I don't like it, it can't be love. I mean, that's the way we define love. Like, it, it, like my, we can see this in so many Disney storylines, and I'm picking on Disney, but it's in storylines all over Hollywood, right? It's this idea that I only pursue what I'm really after, and that's love. But what is that idea rooted in? Its idea, it's rooted in this idea that love at its essence is affection. It's feeling. It's emotion. And I, and I just can't, get past the idea that Paul has to be talking about something a little deeper than that. There's no way feeling or emotion would compel him to face being beat, put in prison. Why? Because none of that stuff feels good. None of that stuff feels nice. He's not sitting in prison going, yes, this is what I have been dreaming about. My entire life has set me up for this place right now. Free meals. I mean, no, he's not thinking that. That is the price that he's paying, but the price is incomparable to the love he's experiencing. Now, Paul isn't in prison to earn love. 
No, it's the love that's compelling him to join the mission of God. And, the, and it, like any mission, there's resistance against God's desires coming to pass in the earth. And that resistance by other people meant he ended up in prison. I'm reminded recently, I was, I was, having, a, I was having a Zoom meeting a couple weeks ago with one of our, the RAMP's site leaders in America. Uh, Cleveland, Tennessee, our location, our newest location. A close friend of mine called Samuel Bentley um, leads that. And him and I were talking, and he recently came back from a trip. Um, he was in L.A. for a few days meeting with some other church leaders. And they were getting trained by um, some, some church leaders from the underground church in Iran. And... Um, I, and whether you're aware, I'm not sure you're aware, but the fastest growing church in the world is actually in Iran. Um, the second fastest growing church in the world is in Afghanistan. And these nations are hostile to the gospel. Uh, they, they, so it, can you just imagine that? A faith that is actually illegal to practice is, is, is experiencing radical growth in nations where you will be persecuted if it's discovered that you're meeting to worship Jesus. And many of the church leaders in the Iranian church right now are women. And they're meeting underground knowing that they're risking their own life. And so Samuel was, was, um, was hearing from this underground church leader, and she was saying at the beginning she was warned by people who love her to say, do you know if you follow Jesus, um, you, you have the potential of being killed, you're a woman, maybe you could potentially be raped. And she said her response to them was, yes, but I've experienced the love of God. And what is 15 minutes of torture compared to knowing God's love? She's been in L.A. for a while to train leaders, and her response to Sam was, she said, I feel that I'm being lulled to sleep by American Christianity. She said, I can't wait to get back to Iran. Christ's love is compelling her. She's tasted something that tastes better than anything earthly she could lose. Now that's deeper than an emotion, isn't it? It's got to be all-consuming. Love is missional. and We're going to dive into a little bit about the biblical idea on love today, and we're going to start with none other than Jesus' own story. So turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter number 3. Now, uh, just a bit of history. M many of you know this, but just, just a, a reminder, Jesus actually didn't start ministering to other people until he was about 30 years old. So he lived 30 years, three decades of life um, just in his family, with his parents, with his extended family, with his brothers and sisters, being a part of the family business. And at 30, he, he feels the call, this is the time for me to enter into ministry. And that's where we're picking up here in the story. He goes to visit a man called John. John the Baptist is what we call him because he, John, was baptizing people in the wilderness. And let's pick up in Matthew chapter 3, starting in verse 13. We're going to read through verse 17. And here's what, here's what Matthew says. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan River to be baptized by John. But John knew who he was, so he tried to deter Jesus, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me. Jesus replied, let it be so. It's proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. There's so many layers in that. We could, we could literally preach a series just on that phrase. I'm going to give you one of those layers today in just a few minutes. Then John consented, because it's a bad idea to say no to Jesus. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water. At that moment, heaven was opened. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove. It wasn't a dove. It was, it was descending like a dove. 
and alighting on him. So the Spirit of God comes down from heaven in this glorious, we can see in other accounts, eyewitness accounts in the Gospels, there was even a sound that people heard. So other people witnessed this. And it, and it alighted, alighted, isn't that a great word, a great old word? So it, it basically covered Jesus. It sat on Jesus. And a voice from heaven said this, This is my Son whom I love. With him I am well pleased. This is my Son whom I love. With him... I am well pleased. This is God expressing his love towards Jesus. Now, remember, love is not simply affection. It's not simply emotion. I'm going to unpack what was God even saying towards him. And we we get to see three things from this, this story. Why is this story relevant for us, Ramp Church? This story is relevant for us because Jesus is about to enter into his mission on earth. And this is what happens to get him into his missional life. Don't you remember, we're in a chapter called Missional Life. We need to look at what does it take to launch us, to send us into a missional life. So that's where Jesus is in his own journey. And we get to see three things. This story tells us three things about God's love. It tells us the source of love. It tells us the timing of love, and it tells us the response of love. The source of love, the timing of love, the response of love. So the first thing I want to talk about is the source of love, the source of love. And this is it. 1 John chapter 4 tells us quite plainly. We don't have to wonder. John says, dear friends, let us love one another for love comes from God. Love comes from God. And really, to really show this this point in, in, a, in a holistic way. I want to read another story. I said we'd be reading a lot of scripture. So let's, let's read this passage together. Exodus 34. Exodus 34. It's a long passage, so I'm just going to read it to you. Exodus 34. We're going to read verses 1 through 10. Now, can I pick you up on this story? Here's one of the layers that Jesus' own baptism and life is, is fulfilling all righteousness. Jesus himself is about to enter into God's promise for him, the missional life. To do that, he, he goes into baptism, which is emerging in water, coming up, and then God descends, the Spirit of God descends, and declares his word over him. If we go back to Exodus 34, we see the people of Israel in a very similar situation. God's delivering them from oppression, from a place of slavery as a people, as a nation. Two and a half million people exiting a nation. And he's sending them to their missional life, into their promise, into what he's promised for them. And the first step, track with me here, is exactly what Jesus went through. They go through the Red Sea and come out the other side. What's that a picture of? Baptism. They go into the water. Their enemies are are chasing them. That, That represent their old bondage, their old identity. They come out of the Red Sea and their enemies drown. That's a picture of baptism. We, we, we step into the water with our old nature. We come out of the water, and it's a representation of the new creation that God's given us. Then Israel comes out of baptism, and now they have an opportunity to meet with God on a mountain. And now we're at the place where Moses has been crying out for the exact same thing Jesus experienced. God, let your presence come down And from that presence, the word of God is going to be declared. Now, that's the law. So we see Jesus, the picture of Jesus. What is he fulfilling all righteousness? He is the new and better Israel. Jesus is saying, this is the promise of God. I am the son of God. So let's dive into the story and look, where was Moses? What happened to Moses when he's asking God, show me your presence, show me your glory? Excuse me, Exodus 34, starting in verse number 1. The Lord said to Moses, Cut for yourself two tablets of stone like the first, because they blew it already, and so they needed to hit redo and get some new tablets. And I, God says, will write on the tablets the word that were on the first tablets, which you broke. Just a little reminder. Be ready by the morning and come up in the morning to Mount Sinai. Present yourself there to me on the top of the mountain. No one should come with you and let no one be seen throughout all the mountain. 
Let no flocks or herds graze opposite that mountain. In other words, it's just you and me, buddy. Come up to that mountain. Make sure nobody else is with you. No crutches, no distractions. You and me. So Moses cut two tablets of stone like the first. He rose early in the morning and went up on Mount Sinai as the Lord had commanded him. He took in his hand two tablets of stone. The Lord descended... Thank you, Holy Spirit. Matthew chapter 3, the Holy Spirit descended. The Lord descended in the cloud and stood with Moses there and proclaimed the name of the Lord. I just want to pause right there because that doesn't mean much to us. But in ancient times, names were not just labels. Names uh, were a picture of your identity of your character. They had, they had meaning. So Moses has been crying out to God, God, show me your glory. Show me your glory. And, and I think what Moses had in mind is, I want to see you. I literally want to see you. I've been hearing your voice. I've been seeing what you've done. I've seen miracles. I've seen evidence and results of your action. I want to see you, who you are. And I don't believe God gives him less than what he asks for by revealing his name. I think God's actually inviting him into a greater revelation than Moses was even asking for. Because by, by God revealing his name, he's not just showing him a picture of himself. He's actually revealing his very nature to Moses. This is an amazing point in human history because humanity had not known God intimately to this point to the degree that God's inviting Israel into. So this is a big thing. Have you, have you ever met somebody for the first time and, and, and you knew at that point, okay, we click. I mean, we're going to be friends. We're going to have a relationship here. That's this moment. Like, like, this is it. Here we go. I mean, we're about to do this. I, I set you free from, from Egypt, so you know I'm a pretty strong dude. I got some power. But I think we may have a future together. That's what this is. Let me introduce. And so Moses is saying, hey, I want to I know you. I want to see you more. And God's saying, okay. Let's get this started. Let's have a little blind date here. God, so the Lord proclaimed the name of the Lord. In our English translation, it says Lord. The original would have been Yahweh, his actual name. So Yahweh passed before Moses. And look at the way God introduces himself. Have you ever wondered? I mean, just picture yourself. God's introducing himself to you. How do you think he would introduce himself? What words would he use? If you were God, what words would you use? Like, dude, I know this is our first time really like meeting like this. Just, just to let you know, um, all the cosmos, I did it. Yeah, I created it. That was me. Um, I know it's amazing. The earth is big. But for me, it's tiny because I'm huge. And I know everything. So basically, all you want to know about in, in, in all of the universe, I know it. I'm aware. And actually, even today, when I, when I, I remember in uni, my, theolo- my in- introduction to systematic theology course, we start by looking at all the attributes of God, the omnis of God, omnipresent, omnipotent, he's omniscient, there's nothing he can't do. I mean, that's where you start studying God. And it looks at all the times in scripture where that's reinforced and that, that's taught. But don't you think it's really important the way God chooses to introduce himself? That's, that's the moment we're in right now. All of creation, all of humanity's history, here's, it comes down. God's about to tell you about who he is. Here's what he says. The Lord passed before Moses. This is what he proclaimed. The Lord, the Lord, or Yahweh, Yahweh. So he says his name twice. A God merciful and gracious. Slow to anger. And abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Keeping steadfast love for thousands. Forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. This is the way God introduces Himself. But who will by, but who, God, will by no means clear the guilty? What's He saying? I'm a God of justice. I am a God of love and mercy and grace, but I'm, I'm, I'm also a God who makes wrong things right. When you've been wronged, I come to make it right. I'll by no means clear the guilty. I, I don't turn a deaf ear or, or, or a blind eye to, to, to when you've been wronged. 
visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children and the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And Moses quickly bowed his head toward the earth and worshipped. And he said, If now I have found favor in your sight, O Lord, please let the Lord go in the midst of us. That God, the God of grace and mercy, slow to anger, rich in steadfast love, come be with us, live with us, for we are a stiff-necked people. Please pardon our iniquity and sin. Take us for your inheritance. You know, this is the most quoted verse in the Bible, by the Bible. So the biblical writers for the rest of this book right here, we just read right here toward the beginning, the rest of the biblical writers reinforce they're enamored with God's self-revelation, the way he revealed himself. They're, they're enamored. You see it all through the Psalms. where they're, they're, they're expressing the idea that God has steadfast love. He's gracious and he's merciful. That's all rooted in his own self-revelation. This actually, this, this word that God uses for steadfast love, is used 246 times in the remainder of the Old Testament. What are they doing? They're, visit, they're revisiting this idea of the way God revealed Himself. And then they're saying it in various ways over and over and over. I just want to introduce this word that's used for steadfast love in this verse. It's the word hesed. Hesed. And... Um, it's, it's translated different ways. Maybe your Bible doesn't say steadfast love. Maybe it says faithfulness. Maybe it says kindness. But it's also translated loyalty, favor, devotion, mercy. Why is it translated so many different ways? Because there literally is no English equivalent to the Hebrew word hesed. There is not a word for word. I remember in high school, um, in the States, most people in high school, for our foreign language, we take two years of Spanish. Um, of course, two years is barely long enough to learn anything, especially a foreign language. But one of the things I do remember about learning Spanish is there's no equivalent to how old are you in Spanish. There's like no equal equivalent from English to Spanish. So when you're trying to, when you're trying to learn that as a Spanish student, the, the only equivalent is like how many years or something like that. Like that's, that's the equivalent. This is the same way. There is no equal equivalent in English to his said. So there are actually scholarly, full scholarly articles. Scholars have have tried to dive into this word to help our English mind understand what God means. And I just want to read you a little bit right here. Will Kynes says this. Look at this. Hesed is never merely an abstract feeling of goodwill, but always entails practical action on behalf of another. God is vastly superior to the Israelites, and yet through his covenant, or through his hesed, he binds himself to them eternally to do them good. What is hesed? It's this faithful, covenant, steadfast love. It's when God chooses you, and there's nothing you can do about it. What does it look like to be loved by God? It doesn't mean he's sitting in heaven with warm fuzzies for you. It's not what it means. It's not like, oh, man. Oh. <laughs> this is what it means. It means he's chosen you, and there's nothing you can do about it. That's what the steadfast love means. It means before you can do anything, good or right, I've already said yes to you. Steadfast love, hesed, in the Old Testament means so much more than just emotion. Yes, God has feelings for you, but those feelings in the biblical revelation, in the hesed of God, always are accompanied by covenantal love, covenantal devotion, unconditional commitment. Matthew chapter 3, when God looks at Jesus and said, this is my son who I love. He's not just saying I have emotions for Jesus. I am unconditionally committed to Jesus. Luke chapter 6, 
See, if we don't understand love this way, we don't understand teachings that even Jesus himself taught. Look at this. Jesus taught this in Luke chapter 6. This is Jesus saying, If you love only those who love you, why should you get credit for that? Even sinners or, or people that aren't orienting their life around God, even sinners, people that don't know God, they, they love those who love them. Everybody does that. And if you do good only to those who do good to you, why should you get credit? Why is he combining love and good, these two concepts? Because chesed is both of these. You, you with me? Even sinners do that much. And if you lend money, hold on, God, get out of my pocketbook, only to those who can repay you, why should you... Get credit. Even sinners will lend to other sinners for a full return. Love your enemies. Oh, hold on. Hold on. Hold on, Jesus. This one's tough. This, this, is, this is a little over the line. I hate my enemies. I, I, don't, I don't like them. I, I don't want them to succeed. They, they don't have my best interest in mind. They actually want me to fail you're asking me to chesed, my enemies, do good to them, lend to them without expecting to be repaid? This is some radical stuff, Ram Church. Then you will truly be acting as children of the Most High. Why is Jesus saying we have the ability to do this? Because we're connected to someone who already chesed's us. For he is kind to those who are unthankful and wicked. Look how Tim Keller breaks down this biblical idea of chesed, this biblical idea of love. Nearly everyone thinks that the Bible's directive to love your neighbor is wise, right, and good. Right? All of us would say that. But notice that it's a command. Love your neighbor. Love your enemies. God's saying. And emotions cannot be commanded. Tim Keller's realizing if, if, if you're reducing love to emotion, you, you're not going to understand any of these verses because you can't command someone to feel a different way. Love them. That never works. I mean, maybe you tried it yourself. I want to love them. I'm going to make myself. No, emotions can't be commanded. The Bible does not call us to like our neighbor to have affection and warm feelings towards him or her. No, the call is to love your neighbor. And that must primarily mean displaying a set of behaviors. Look what C.S. Lewis says on this same topic. C.S. Lewis said this in one of his BBC radio broadcasts in the middle of World War II. Of course, he himself uh, fought in World War II, and so he's speaking into this moment. Look at this. Though natural likings should normally be encouraged, natural likings, it would be quite wrong to think that the way to become charitable is to sit trying to manufacture affectionate feelings. The rule for all of us is perfectly simple. Don't waste time bothering whether you, quote, love your neighbor, act as if you did. As soon as we get, as soon as we do this, we find one of the great secrets. When you're behaving as if you loved someone, you will presently come to love him. If you injure someone you dislike, you'll find yourself disliking him more. If you do him a good turn, you'll find yourself disliking him less. Whenever we do good to another self, just because it is a self made like us by God and desiring its own happiness as we desire ours, we shall have learned to love it a little more or at least to dislike it less. The worldly man treats certain people kindly because, um, because he likes them. The Christian, trying to treat everyone kindly, finds himself liking more and more people as he goes on, including people he could not even have imagined himself liking at the beginning. What's, what's Lewis saying? He's highlighting this fact that chesed, biblical love, starts with the way we treat and are committed to one another. This is where Jesus was coming from. Lewis goes a bit deeper in, in this teaching um, with great potency even for his time in World War II. Look at this. This same spiritual law works terribly in the opposite direction. The Germans, perhaps at first, ill-treated the Jews because they hated them. 
Afterwards, they hated them much more because they had ill-treated them. The more cruel you are, the more you will hate. And the more you hate, the more cruel you will become. And so on in a vicious circle forever. What's Lewis trying to paint this picture for us? He's trying to, he's trying to rescue the concept of biblical love from, from where we've, we've hit it in this emotional space. And he's trying to say, no, 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 no. Love is so much bigger than that. Love actually starts with unconditional commitment to someone else. What does it mean for us to love others? What does it mean for us to be loved by God? What does it mean for us to love the city around us? It means unconditional commitment to their well-being. First thing we learn from Jesus' story, we see it, is we see the source of love. God is the source of love. Love comes from God, but it isn't just warm fuzzies. It's not just an affection. We see this revealed that before Jesus is sent on a mission of life, he hears from God, I'm radically committed to you. The next thing we see is the timing of love. Notice that the Father's expression of love to Jesus came before Jesus did anything for the Father. See, we, we don't have this concept. Our concept of love today is, is, is primarily, if we could summate it, we could summate it by saying, if you perform well for me, I will love you. If you treat me the way I want to be treated, if you add to my life what I want to be added, if you give me the appearance in my life toward others that I want to appear toward others, then you can be the, the, the beneficiary of my love. Our love is completely opposite to the love we see the Father expressing to the Son in Matthew 3 when, when before Jesus performs a single miracle, before he preaches a single message, God sends his Spirit and then declares over Jesus, I love you. You haven't done anything. You can't deserve it. Because I've already unconditionally chosen you. What does this story tell us about God's love? It tells us that the timing of love precedes our missional activity. You can't be missional enough to get God to commit to you more. You've got to let that sink in. What I'm talking about now, I'm talking about the motivation for mission. That's what, I'm, that's what I'm speaking of. This is the motivation. This is what's behind our mission. Now, of course, we know the blessings of God. Those come because we're in alignment with his will. So there are things in the kingdom that are, that are, that are conditional, right? There's aspects of kingdom life that, that are directly connected to our obedience to what God said. And we ultimately know that, uh, that love is displayed through obedience, right? That's a different message. What I'm talking about here is where does our missional living come from? What ultimately sends us into missional living? I tell you, if you hear a voice from heaven shouting through the clouds, I'm unconditionally committed to you, that's going to change the way you live. There's going to be something in your, in your behavior fundamentally that shifts. This is an invitation before we enter into a missional life to hear the timing of love. I love this in Romans 5, 8. This is, this is an example. God displayed or showed or expressed or manifested his love for us in that this. While we were still sinners, enemies of God's way, rebels in, in, in the global uh, kingdom, um, we were still sinners. Christ died for us. I love the way Eugene Peterson translates this in the message. Look at this. Christ didn't and doesn't Wait for us to get ready. He, he presented himself for this sacrificial death when we were far too weak and rebellious to do anything to get ourselves ready. And even if we hadn't been so weak, we wouldn't have known what to do anyway. We can understand someone dying for a person worth dying for. And we can understand how someone good and noble could inspire us to selfless sacrifice. But God put his love on the line for us 
by offering his son in sacrificial death while we were of no use whatsoever to him. The timing of love. You've got to realize God's default posture towards you, default, default, not after you do it right, his default posture is unconditional choosing. He's actually, he's already given his, given his greatest prize for you. While you were in rebellion against him, this is the starting place for mission. When, you, when, this, when the penny drops on these realities, everything changes. Let's, let's move on to the next one. So we see the source of love, the timing of love. And the next thing we see in the story of Jesus' missional sending is the response of love. What happens when you see all of this? And I want to return back to 2 Corinthians 5 where we started at the beginning. And look at this. Look at this. 2 Corinthians 5. For Christ's love compels us because we're convinced that, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all that those who live, who's that? It's you, me, you and I live. How do we live? We no longer live for, for ourselves. That's what Paul says. Why? Um, because we've seen that there's someone way greater than me who's unconditionally committed to me. So that allows me to know he's taking care of me. I can give my life for them. Come on, you've got to see this. Why does mission have to start here? Because as long as we think that it's all up to us and that God is not unconditionally committed to us, there's no way we could say what that Iranian pastor said, where she says, what is that sacrifice? What's 15 minutes of tor torture compared to the love of God that I know on a daily basis? Unless we're tuned in with the voice from heaven that's declaring his unconditional commitment to us, we can never say what Paul is saying here. Ah, oh, I no longer live for myself, but I live for Christ who died for me and he was raised again. What does it mean to love your neighbor, to love your family, to love your workmates, to love Manchester? Here's what it means. Look at this. To love Manchester is to choose it unconditionally and to serve it sacrificially. What does it mean for you and I to love like God loves to your neighbors, to your workmates, to your family? We choose them. I know they don't treat you right. I know this city, uh, maybe you have bad memories here. Maybe, maybe you drive down a certain street and you can remember what happened to you there or or you remember maybe a situation, or maybe you drive in a certain neighborhood, maybe the one you were raised with bad experiences, or maybe you, maybe you, you, you see a text from an old schoolmate, and so sometimes just choosing the place that has caused me pain is a miraculous step in itself. Sometimes choosing the place God's put me, that is the first step to love. Actually, from the Bible's perspective, that's the essence of love. I'm choosing it unconditionally, and I'm serving it sacrificially. I am giving my life because I love. I am compelled by Christ's love. How can something outside of me compel me? These, these ways. Here's the steps right here. Because I remember. I remember that when I didn't deserve love, when I couldn't perform well enough, God's love that was unconditionally committed to me and to my well-being, God's love came and found me. To remember means to return to the point again. Band, you can go ahead and come. We're going to pray here in a moment and sing together. To remember means to return to the point again, the point that God loves me. He's unconditionally committed to me. We love, John tells us, because God first loved us. Life, listen to me, dismembers the reality of God's love. After Jesus had this encounter with the love of God expressed to him, he actually has an experience with Satan who comes against the very thing that God spoke to him. Life has a tendency to do that. We come in, in, into contact with the reality of God's love. 
Life dismembers. That's why we need to remember. We need to return to the point again. Life dismembers the realities of God's love. To remember is to stop, sit down, pause, put the pieces back together. Jesus' first major battle was being tempted by the devil to dismember what God had told him. Why do we meet together as a church? Why do we gather? Why do we have communities? Why, why do we feel like the bedrock of any, any relationship with God is, is personal time spent with him, reading his word, prayer, personal time in worship? Because the only way to live missionally is to live a life in remembrance where what God has done is constantly remembered. It's put back together. Uh, Life challenges it. I I, I lose a job. It makes me think, oh gosh, God can't love me. I I have a difficult conversation with a spouse or with a family member, with a friend, and we have a falling out. God must not love me. He, he must not actually be unconditionally committed to me. I, I have a situation where life dismembers what God has already said about you and done for you. We need these spaces. We need communities. We need private and uh, personal time with God. Why? Because we need to remember the love of God. We need to keep it before us. God actually told Israel, write it on your doorposts. Bind it around your, your wrists, on your forehead. What's it? He's trying to, whatever it takes. Whatever it takes, just keep God's love before you. Why? It is the motivation for mission. God's unconditional commitment to you is the only thing that can compel you to unconditionally commit to anything else. To his mission, his work on the earth. First thing you do is remember. The next thing you do is receive. To receive is to embrace God's love in defiance of every other truth. What am I calling you today? I'm calling you to remember. I'm calling you to receive. You're receiving God's love, His unconditional commitment to you in defiance of every other truth. When you receive, you've made your final decision. Maybe you have doubts along the way. Maybe you have challenges along. But my final, what's my final decision? My ultimate choice, my decision is, no, God, you love me. You're committed to me, and I can therefore live a missional life. My ultimate and final commitment is that God loves me. Remember, receive, and then respond. To respond is to live and act as if God's love matters. Responding looks like living and acting as if God's love matters. We have the power today. To remember to receive God's love and live lives, missional lives, laid down for others because Christ's love compels us. Let's sing together. I'm going to come back and pray with you in a bit. One of our team is. But for now, I want us to sing together. Let's to enter into the space. I just want to challenge you to respond in some way to God. This is a moment where we hear what He's saying. This is the space where we make decisions, we make commitments to Him. We, Listen and say, God, I'm listening. I I want to respond to what you're saying. I want to be a person who constantly remembers. Maybe for you, it's you don't have habits or patterns in life where you're remembering. You're you're in and out of a faith family. You're in and out of church gatherings. You're in and out of scripture or prayer. Maybe maybe the next step for you is is committing to remembrance times. Maybe for you, you maybe come to church, but it never you never let it sink in. You're not receiving. It doesn't change your vision of reality. You just say, yeah, it's a truth out there. Some people believe, but for me, it doesn't shift anything. Maybe for you, it's about responding. It's about my life doesn't look like God's love matters. It looks like it's one option. It looks like, yeah, it's great. God, God cares for me. What does it look like to, to, to rotate your life around that? Let's go ahead and sing together.